Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show two friends of mine and former colleagues, Steve DeWint, who is Chief Executive Officer of the Duke of Edinburgh's Award in Canada, and Peter Kay, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Duke of Edinburgh's Award in Australia. As some of you might know, I used to be the Director of Development for the Duke of Edinburgh's Award International. And during my time there a few years back, Steve and Peter were both colleagues of mine. And they are two individuals I hold in high esteem, thoroughly enjoyed working with, and look forward to having a great chat with today. We're going to be looking at the work of the Duke of Edinburgh's Award, both internationally, but also in Australia and in Canada, respectively. The importance of reaching out to disadvantaged communities and marginalized communities of embracing diversity, equity, and inclusion. So the work that's going on around that in Australia and in Canada. And also touching on volunteering, mentoring, and indeed also the Duke of Edinburgh's alumni community, an intergenerational community, as it were. For additional context ahead of today's show, if you're so inclined, do listen to the episode from the 27th of May, 2019, that was an interview I did with John May when he was Secretary General of the Duke of Edinburgh's Award International. And that'll give you a really good foundation for understanding what the award is all about. Today's episode drills down a little bit more into the specific countries and specific initiatives. And I should point out also that it's a, a year of celebration as, uh, as in 2023, the Duke of Edinburgh's Award in Canada celebrates her 60th anniversary. Steve, I guess maybe we start with you. I've known you for many years and you've had both an engagement with the DOV internationally and also the Duke of Edinburgh's in Canada. Give us a little bit of a flavor for the organization. What exactly is the Duke of Edinburgh's award? So it's a non-formal framework. I think the real exciting thing for me within the award was the fact that it's a framework that helps young people, and it's the same across so many different countries around the world. So we have a product that can be used to inspire young people to try new things, to learn from those experiences, and also to be able to gain recognition for the things that they learn outside of the classroom. And I think that's really important. It was a special part of my education. And I really, you know, I believe that it's what will make a difference for young people going forward into a future, which is probably far less certain than it was for uh, young people 20, 30 years ago, going through the school systems. And when you say young people, remind me, what age bracket are we looking at? Well, in theory, it's 14 to 25 years old. But in reality, I think certainly here in Canada, and Peter may differ, here in uh, here in Canada, it really is 14 to 19 is the age where it's taken up. We have very few people over the age of 19 engaged, predominantly because they use it to get into college. Uh, it's a big differentiator on college applications and for scholarship programs for higher education. Got you, got you. And Peter, in Australia... Does the uh, the narrative that Steve's put forward, does it resonate with the work that you guys are doing over there? Uh, very much so, Alberto. It, um, uh, part of probably add is in the modern context, the, the award framework is a four-part four framework 
and, and in effect, what it's what's uh, enabling young people to do is to organise their extracurricular or non-formal education in a very deliberate, meaningful way, so that um, they're not just undertaking extracurricular activities, but they're doing it over time with some mentoring. Uh, they're logging, they're reflecting, so they're actually adding a very strong educational component to this non-formal education. And that's why over 60 plus years around the world, the award has become the the, the, the reference framework for uh, tertiary institutions, but also for employers who are seeking to have evidence, uh, reliable evidence of um, uh, the non-formal education learning that young people have undertaken. Excellent. And Peter, you mentioned 60 years. I think uh, that's pretty much what we're looking at. I think Canada, you're celebrating your six, 60th anniversary today or this year, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. It's, we, we are 60 this year in 2023. Excellent. Well, happy birthday. I know the Duke of Edinburgh's award, as it says on the on the label, as it were, it was founded by uh, His Royal Highness uh, Prince Philip. The Duke of Edinburgh passed away not that long ago, sadly. Uh, but left a, a lasting legacy. It's a huge organization, right? In the UK, we know it very well, but it's not just active in the UK. You're both examples of how it's active globally. And actually, what are we looking at these these days in terms of, the, roughly speaking, the number of people who participated in the award, the number of countries? Uh, it's a huge endeavor. But why don't you give us, either one of you, give us a little bit of a flavor for for exactly what sort of footprint we're looking at here. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on that one. Um, there's been well over 130 countries uh, on and off using the, uh, the framework. Um, and um, so I think the figures are sort of around the 155, 160 mark, but certainly at the moment it's 130. Uh, in round numbers, we're talking about uh, just around a million young people uh, registering to use the, uh, the framework and, and undertake uh, the, the first of hopefully uh, three levels of uh, award. Uh, the, the part that often surprises people is that it is uh, considered to be a bit of a Commonwealth country thing, but with 130 clearly it's well beyond the Commonwealth. And, um, and when you start to look at, you know, the um, inroads that has been made, um, we've got some of the largest and biggest users are coming out of the African continent. Uh, some of the fast growth is coming out of um, Eastern Europe. And, uh, and then we're seeing some big leaps and bounds coming out of China and, and some uh, some other parts of the world as well. So it often surprises people because um, clearly Australia and Canada are good examples of our Commonwealth, but yeah, we, we're just a very you know, small component of what's a huge uh, take up around the world. Amazing. And in Australia itself, again, not a small country, uh, what's um, what's the, the landscape look like in terms of the, the people who are doing the award and uh, the sort of initiatives that you're driving forward right right now? Yeah, look, um, the, the, the key thing with the uh, award in Australia is that we've been positioning it to be the, the leading um, uh, non-formal education accrediting body. And um, to, to that degree, the, uh, from, from a uh, strategy point of view, the positioning we've taken as a, as a charity is to ensure that we had, uh, well, basically four solid things in place. We ensured that we had the right structure and governance model that would enable us to be the to be a major player, if not the largest uh, player. Um, secondly, we, we ensured that we had the, the um, financial independence. So in Australia, we're at the point where we are 100% self-funding, 
from our registration fees. Uh, third, that we were able to, to achieve diversity and inclusiveness because saying that you provide access to your product or your service is very different to actually enabling it. And so we, we, we've created a very strong enabling framework where just in the last uh, five, six years, we have funded about eight and a half thousand young people. So we're striving to um, have 20% of our users to be young people who'd normally not have those opportunities to undertake uh, these in a more structured way that um, uh, non-formal education activities. And um, the, the fourth component is is to, to be um, recognised by the major players in the country. And in Australia, if you're recognised by sporting organisations, if you're recognised by the tertiary sector, if you're recognised by the multiple levels of government, and if you're recognised by employers, if you've got that that quad, then you're in. And um, and so we've, we've made some huge inroads into uh, uh, achieving all those, um, or not fully, but we're, we're well underway. So, so in terms of the building blocks to being a bigger and better or useful, you know, charity to the wider community, we're well underway. Excellent. And one one of the things that we can touch on a little bit later as well, and I remember, Peter, you and I were on a bus in South Korea uh, for one of the big global gatherings of the DOV, of the Duke of Edinburgh, a, a few years back. And I remember having a really great conversation with you where you mentioned that actually it's not, just underscoring what you just said, um, having an offering that is aimed and hopefully catering to those more marginalized segments of society isn't enough. You actually need to proactively reach out to these communities and make sure that that they know that this this offering is there and and encouraging them to to come to it um yep. steve steve in uh, in your neck of the woods what's the what's the la landscape look like for for canada what are what are some of the the initiatives and the uh, the dynamics that you're contending with so with a for our age group we are the single biggest youth organization across canada um, in, in, in the global scheme of things, that isn't huge, however. So we have about, before the pandemic, we we're about 10,000 new entrants every year. Uh, during the pandemic, we've been about 6,000 new entrants every year, which means we have about 13,000 young people taking part at any one time. Uh, across Canada, fairly small population compared to the size, geographic size of the country. That's been, um, that, that is a huge number in the 14 to 19. So I think what we've seen, and, and I think this was a, a big difference for me moving from the International Foundation to a specific uh, country sort of jurisdiction. The, the big difference was the fact that how much individuals, people's perception of something so standard, such as the award, and it's a single framework, could alter. So in certain provinces, we were known as a weaker version of the Scouts or we're known as a camping program. And, you know, coming from, as you know, Alberto, coming from the background we had come from sort of in this central, in some senses, ivory tower, I found that very strange. So we've spent a lot of the, the last four years really trying to re-educate 
what might be considered an old market, a developed market, in what the award can be in the modern era, how it can really help with with non-formal learning and accrediting that, really, as Peter just said, about you know being the organization which is renowned for doing that. So at the moment, we're approaching a number of uh, provincial ministries of education. Um, we're trying to work with them to get them to endorse the award being used really on a wholesale basis within their schools network in particular and uh, really trying to make sure that they they treat the award as this framework that could be used by anybody and you know so it was it was strange to arrive here and find that people saying oh well, you're a little bit like the scouts when the scouts use the award framework as one of the tools that they use to engage with young people uh, same with girl guides same with cadets canada so they all use the framework it's not as though we're trying to duplicate their work so we're, we're trying to work with education that's our main focus in particular for the last two years um picking up on your a bit about diversity equity and inclusion that's been interesting as well. And not only is Canada split into 10 provinces and three territories, uh, but, you know, we are very governed by sort of social media. So we get an awful lot of stuff that's trending. And I, I, we found that quite difficult to deal with. We are a standard product. And I have to say, as, uh, as a chief executive of a, of a charity, which is a very standard product that is open to all and can be used by people in enough circumstances that it's useful in 130 plus countries and territories around the world, every diverse group assumes that its problems are very different than anybody else. And actually it's more than just making it available. You really do have to <clears throat> make very quite niche groups these days understand that there is something there for them. And I think that's been a big uh, issue for us. Uh, and uh, we, we have done some amazing work here in Canada with Indigenous groups and Indigenous communities over the years, um, but there are over 600 recognised uh, First Nations, never mind uh, Metis and Inuit, 600, over 600 recognised tribal bands, uh, many of whom believe that the issues they face and their band faces is different than somebody else's. And so making the award, and I'm sure making any youth product, uh, seem relevant in those different circumstances. I think that's a real challenge and one that we've really been trying to get our teeth into because we know it is applicable. The question is, can you make it feel appropriate to particular communities that they want to engage? Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Is that, and this is, I'll put this out to both of you, uh, in terms of reaching to communities who may not normally be inclined or be aware of the Duke of Edinburgh's award, tell us a little bit about that initiative, that drive to 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 reach out to to these segments. Um, I'd love to understand a little bit better the dynamics both in Australia and and in um, in Canada. Yeah, I'll, I'll drop in, Alberto. Um, we 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 deliberately did two things here to not only reach but to reach and create a pipeline that's that's sustainable and growing uh the main thing we did is we changed our marketing communication strategy from one of promoting the product to a wide market uh, uh and instead what we do what we did is we have the market calling on the product so we went from a push approach to a pull approach so when i mentioned before for example employers we now have employers who actually on their recruitment form on their website asked a question, have you used, have you completed a Duke of Edinburgh? Uh, universities on their intake ask, 
and, and, and get uh, extra entry points, right? Um, sport organisations, when you're registering for your season of, um, you know, ice hockey or badminton or whatever it might be, ask, are you using this sport for your Duke of Ed? So when young Alberto is applying for a casual job, he's being asked about it. When, when you're registering for a season of uh, football, you're being asked about it. When you're applying to go to college or you know university, you're being asked about it or an apprenticeship or a traineeship. So that's the pool strategy. And what that does is it, it sort of incorporates it and normalises it into everyday language without us trying to create a multifaceted campaign of um, it's good for everybody. Uh, the second part is, in the, and I touched on it before, it's recognising that, um, that, that it's not just enough to say anyone can access it and use the, the framework. If you come from a disadvantaged background, social, economic, remote, uh, you're coming off a drug addiction, whatever it might be, you've just engaged with the formal education system. It's not enough to say you can do it, but it's not enough to even make the access to it free. <clears throat> to give an example, in Australia, we average, we actually pay disadvantaged young people to use the award framework. It's about $500 each. If they're recovering from mental health or being managed with mental health, they get about a thousand each. And if they're uh, disabled in any sort of way, um, wheelchair bound intellectually, they get up to 3,000 each. Now, so what we're saying is you will need extra support. You will need maybe transport. You may need a carer. You may need whatever it might be. And so that's creating an enabling environment through the resourcing and the financing. Now, the success of that is in Australia, and, and you must appreciate that using the award framework and completing one of the levels is a minimum six months, but it's typically around 13, 14 months. So that engagement over time does bring about the behavioural changes and characteristics, but it also has a, has a reasonable dropout. Now, our current completion rate is about 45%. We'd love to be higher, but it's pretty good given the duration that the young people have got to carry out these, these um, selected activities. Those that we fund that are disadvantaged, the completion rates between 65 and 95%. Now, that's 100% because the people that work with these young people have become empowered and recognised that, that that extra $500 in the kitty to make things happen um, is like unheard of. And, and there's no limit to how many they can. So if you walked in Alberta and said, I've got 70 disadvantaged young people I'm working with, and you put an application in for $35,000, you will get that. And that enabling environment has made a huge difference in terms of how the market perceives the Duke of Ed in our country. Remarkable. Stephen, your neck of the woods, give us a little bit more insight into what you touched on earlier about reaching out to uh, really a, a range of very diverse communities and and groups. And also maybe if you could touch a little bit on something that I remember was a very big focus of your life way back when which is about actually tracking who's doing what and how many people are actually participating and because it's one thing to sign up to a program and it's another one to to start understanding completion rates and who's doing what and so forth so i'd love to understand what are some of the challenges that you're facing not just in reaching out but also in understanding actually how successful this outreach is and how many people are doing what and and, and making sure that nobody's falling through the cracks. Because I remember that was a big part of your life when you were running operations internationally. Sure. So first on the on the inclusion side, uh, I, I think the real 
the real trick, the, the real challenge is, is what Peter's saying. It's about making the case to others that would mean that they are looking for the award. That leaves our job then simply to overcome barriers. If it's then about socioeconomic um, deprivation and financial resources, it's about then providing them. Part of the problem is, I think, for Canada, and again, this is more to do with our jurisdictional makeup, the different provinces, the different. There isn't, there isn't any standard. There, there are very few standard asks of people. You know, to, to the information you you need to put on a job application is likely to be different, not just because of the job, but also because of which province you're in and, and how that works. Certainly, in terms of the qualifications and what people ask for when you're applying for university, when you're applying, there are some things that are standard, but trying to get a message out like, you know, have you used something like the Duke of Edinburgh's award? And it doesn't have to be just us. You know, that is very difficult. We're also, uh, we're also influenced a huge amount, I believe, by our Southern cousins uh, from the US. And, you know, they're even more disparate in some of these issues around, you know, the state control education to a huge level that, municipal areas and there are some concepts of education which i struggle to to understand the high school diploma not a very worthwhile uh, qualification but has huge amounts of uh, buy-in and, and that's pretty controversial but it is it's very generalist uh, qualification very dependent uh, on socioeconomic circumstance the teachers you've got the school you go to it seems you know there's very little uh, objectivity in you know, there's no there's no there's no objective exams or very few that come out of a coursework that's marked by your own teacher uh, so you know it, it often seems i think to many people who are excluded um, for whatever reason for a whole range of diverse factors that it's more about who you are within the school environment not what you achieve within the school environment and trying to change some of that culture so that people are asking for the what did you achieve uh, and how can you evidence that is really difficult. And I'm, it's not just me saying that. That question has been at the heart of some of the work done uh, by the UN, uh, by um, OECD, around uh, trying to recognise non-formal education and recognise uh, prior learning, if you learning that's come from other areas than, a, than an examined piece of work. So... It, it, it's a it's a struggle for everybody. It's a huge driver, or could be using a framework like the award, uh, and I think really making that leap to having uh, institutions within society think what is it we really do need instead of just accepting that you know a degree is what we're looking for on a job application. And again, we we live in this strange world where on the one hand governments fund universities to huge amounts. And people say, oh, I must have a degree. I must have a master's. I must have an MBA. And then what we hear from employers is that the people coming out of institutions, these colleges, universities, institutions of learning, um, they don't have the right skills. And, and it's a real dichotomy that I think the award tries to address. But really, our scope, I think, is limited. We can solve the barriers if there is a desire to see the qualification, to see the recognition given in the first place. So we've been putting a lot of effort into trying to get that recognition by employers, uh, by institutions uh, of learning, by a whole variety of different pieces of societal infrastructure, uh, as well as employers and the corporate infrastructure that exists. Um, in terms of the statistics, I mean, 
we've really tried to focus on measuring the impact of the award. Um, we, we can get the statistics. The award uses an online digital system to try and help young people record what they have done. Uh, it, it needs to be even better than it is. And I think ours is, is really quite good in comparison to what else exists. But there is a huge amount of value in simply recording the developmental journey that you've been on as a young person. And doing it digitally means that we can capture the statistics from some of that. Um, keeping in touch with people once they've done their award to find out what impact it has, you know, keeping in touch with alumni, as we call them, is important from the point of view of you can ask them longitudinal questions about what has changed since, how do you feel now? And I think that's also becoming increasingly important. It's certainly what links us to uh, the Sustainable Development Goals. It, what, it's what links us to, uh, in Canada, we have what are called global competencies for graduation uh, that are accepted across the country. And the award hits the six of them that are accepted by all the ministers of education uh, when they come together. And the award hits five of those very easily uh, in terms of global competencies around self-awareness, self-confidence, etc. So it's measuring those things which we're really trying to focus on, those uh, outcomes for individuals, and then looking at societal impacts. What does it mean to have a more empowered, more self-aware, more self-confident Alberto, you know, helping out with a local uh, animal shelter, for instance? And what is the value of that? So, you know, that's what we've been really trying to focus on. Excellent. I love it. You mentioned the uh, the online record book, or at least that's how I, I used to know it, but a, a digital platform that enables people to, uh, participants and, and award leaders to try to record the progress that's happening uh, at an individual level. And um, and also you touched on the alumni community, as it were. I remember when I was working with the DOV internationally, the alumni internationally was sort of like a nascent concept. This was uh, about 10 years ago. But there was one person... There was one person in the international, in the whole DOV award family, who was a huge advocate of that, and and that person, Peter, was you. I remember when I was doing a little bit of research and fact finding into the world of alumni communities and what that could look like and looks like. You not only were a fountain of knowledge, and but you were a passionate advocate for the value of alumni communities, and also you'd been doing alumni work already with the DOV in Australia. I think before it took off internationally, right? Correct, and the alumni related relating to the um, the Duke of Ed's a very um, a special beast because um, the Duke of Ed itself is not the prime point of loyalty or engagement for a young person because they access it through an existing organisation. So earlier earlier on, um, scouting was mentioned as users of the framework, but our biggest users are schools, um, secondary schools, high schools, as you wish to call them. Um, so first and foremost, what our research showed is that the connection with the Duke of Ed was very much with their award leaders. And these are the people who have trained to interpret, translate, manage the, the award and create the individual programs that each of the young people um, you know, uh, use to complete the requirements and, and, and achieve that verified portfolio of learning. But, um, what, what what we think that the alumni and we gave it a lot of time and attention was because they were unusual and they couldn't just be relied on you couldn't just assume they have accessed the award they've been using it for a couple of years 
and therefore we have a connection with them. And we actually, they completed it. And we have, you know, hundreds of thousands that have now got this um, thing called the Duke of Ed Award. What we, what we um, did in, in Australia is said, um, when someone accesses the Duke of Ed and uses the framework, it opens up opportunities for them. And once you've, you've completed the requirements and you've done all three levels, the journey doesn't have to end there. You can still connect with other people through the, the alumni, and that will keep creating opportunities and opening doors for you. Um, it wasn't about harnessing huge numbers. It wasn't about using them to, as a donor base or even as a major volunteer base. And, and there's a big topic, you know, the, 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 the changing profile of volunteering around the world. Um, but it was very much about saying that there is a very unique relationship and, and the language we use and how we communicate with our alumni cannot be the same way a university or a school communicates with its alumni. Yeah. The alumni uh, side of things in Canada, how is that looking, uh, Steve? Within the global framework, Canada is, is, is the single largest group at the moment. I think, I mean, I agree with Peter. It's a very, it's a very interesting concept, alumni within the award. Out of all the organizations that, that deal with alumni, it probably most closely resembles um, AMBA, the Association of MBAs. It, it really needs to play a, a role in facilitating the networking of people who have moved to another stage of their lives. I always found it quite interesting that, you know, if you ever spoke to alumni, if you ever spoke about alumni to the Duke of Edinburgh himself, um, he would have always been quite dismissive. His view was, well, we're supposed to be helping to helping young people to become, you know, more engaged, more empowered young adults. And once they've done the award, they've grown, they've developed. So leave them to get on with it, um, which I suppose is a is is a is a view of his time. Uh, now it needs more than that. It needs a network to link into. But the question is, where is that place for the award alumni? Um, and I agree with what Peter's saying. It's it's very different than other institutions, uh, the, the level of engagement, the type of engagement. But I think we have a role to play in helping young people share the fact that they've been through certain experiences. What we can't do and what we're desperately trying to stay away from here is uh, many of them know organizations about, you know, talk, uh, bringing you back to your high school reunion, bringing you back to your, you know, to your uh, college reunion. Uh, we're not bringing anybody back. We're taking them forward into the future. Um, we're not bringing them back to reminisce and you know talk about the good old days. We want them in a dynamic network that talks about opportunities for the future and how they can continue to grow and take the lessons they took from the award, the goal setting, the working with a mentor, and use those to develop further just in a different context. And by this point, hopefully they don't need a badge to appreciate the learning they've gone through. So I think there are some different concepts, but we're certainly getting our heads around those. While Peter was talking, it, it it, dawned, it sort of dawned on me in this conversation that, you know, it's yet another area of competition. And we don't often talk about competition within the charitable sector. Um, but our competitors aren't one another. It's not the scouts or guides. It's not 4-H. Um, our competitors are the other things young people would do in their lives. It's the other social networks that they would use to develop their careers. I mean, dare I say it, you know, a competitor for the award alumni is LinkedIn because that would be another network that they would use. You may say, well, it's a channel that would facilitate it. 
but actually you know linkedin provides uh, continuing learning it provides a network of people where you can access and those are the things that our alumni would want to be providing just for people who've been through this same experience and might relate to one another better because of that experience i still think that that's powerful but it's very it's very interesting we started thinking about you know these these competitors more and more recently um so that we we do you know reach out in in more specific ways to different types of people and different communities um going back to the inclusion argument so it's it's, it's an interesting concept alumni for us we're certainly growing uh, we have over a thousand people who regularly come on board with our alumni network, and there are you know, th there's probably about another thousand who engage through less formal networks. And we've obviously we're, we're it's a huge drive of our 60th to get people to stand up and wear their badge and you know fascinating stuff. Peter, you, you touched on the changing nature of volunteers, and I'm wondering, uh, a question for both of you, really, but I'm wondering whether this um, growing alumni community, whether they're also quite active in trying to um, encourage the next generation by being volunteers at the, at the DOV Award and, um, and, uh, and being involved um, once they've embarked in whatever they're doing in their, in their professional lives. I think it's got to be seen from a different concept. Alberta from for here so the high school diploma in most provinces across Canada has a compulsory 40 hours so from a participant's point of view one of the things that we stress and this comes out of that social impact you asked me to talk about earlier you know, the award because it's longitudinal because you're doing things over time is far better at changing attitudes so we have a huge crop of young people who are essentially forced to do 40 hours volunteering and they they quite literally just, you know, tick hours off a box, um, doing whatever they can, but with no real purpose. And for many, it leaves a sour taste in the mouth that doesn't uh, encourage them to continue volunteering, whereas the opposite is true of those who do it as part of their award. So I think in a world where things like volunteering and you know, working with community members in some senses is more enforced than perhaps it ever was. It's not a choice. It's a, then the award is one which at least gives it purpose and perhaps gives it a context which you can reflect on and, and grow from. So for us that, you know, where the volunteers sit within the participant bracket, that's, that's really important. Uh, perhaps, I mean, Peter wants to talk wider than that, but it's, uh, it was an interesting context for me to arrive into here in Canada with this 40 hours compulsory, volunteering i'm not quite sure whether those two words go together compulsory and volunteering it seems, <laughs> like, seems like an oxymoron i did want to touch on volunteering from a from that broader point of view because um one of the key features of the award framework being used and used by uh, an exponentially greater number of young people around the world is that at the moment it is largely driven by volunteers and and the, the two key groups of people that we've mentioned in this conversation, but it's worth just um, for those that aren't familiar with the Duke of Ed, uh, giving them a bit more definition. So we refer to award leaders, and these are the adults that put their hand up or um, are appointed in organisations to to be the um, the framework experts. So they interpret, translate, they're trained, and and um, so the, the Duke of Ed is a social franchise model. The um, schools, the youth organisations, apply for a licence, and they have these award leaders trained up. But the big army of people that we're dependent on are these um, activity mentors. Uh, 
they are the coaches, the assessors, the subject matter experts. And so whatever uh, four activities are selected by a young person in consultation with their award leader and typically influenced by their peers, um, each of those activities has a recognized, approved subject matter expert that acts as a mentor. So to give you an example, so in, in, in Australia, we have trained around 4,000 award leaders, but we have about 58,000 activity coaches, these mentors. So our, our volunteer group is well over 60,000. And, and that's to manage at the moment about 45, 50,000 young people actively using the framework. Now, our immediate goal is to make that 250,000. The, the volunteer trends around the world, and lots of charities seeing this, is that there's a that the sort of volunteers that we want, those that stay with us for a period of time, six, 12, 18 months, that type of membership volunteering, as it's generally referred to, is dropping like a brick. It's, it's, it's a rapidly falling group of volunteering. And the major growth in volunteering in, in most countries around the world is around cause-based or casual or spontaneous volunteering. And so we have a product that's going against the trend in terms of the huge human resource bank that we need to be able to deliver it effectively. And so that that, that is a challenge we have. But I also know many, many charities that rely on a large group of human resources are facing that. Sporting clubs are very obvious examples uh, that, that, that have that challenge. So this is something that we're putting a lot of effort into addressing and, and looking at hybrid models, looking at um, incentivization of volunteers and, and um, Steve, to use your oxymoron term, you know, compulsory volunteering, that we're actually having the conversation that should volunteers be receiving some form of um, more tangible recognition. And, and the one that we're experimenting with in Australia is we're actually paying their phone plans. So if you're a volunteer that's doing a certain high level of volunteering, we will pay basically a, a set amount, which is equivalent roughly to a generous annual phone plan. But in exchange, you've got to give a certain amount of volunteering, you know. Um, so we're looking at here, yeah, we're, we're experimenting and looking at how this is going to work. And then, <clears throat> so that, 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 that's a really big challenge for us in terms of our continuity and, and our growth. But the, the other big uh, challenge, and we've, we've already mentioned it, is the whole digitization, improving systems. And, um, you know, I, I've mentioned in other, in other conversations with people that what we have now with uh, Generation Alpha is the world's first generation currently being born of humanoids. This is the first generation of humans that whose life will be largely formed and dictated by algorithm, by coding, prepared by others. What they eat, where they move, how they're educated, you know, their recreational pursuits, and that's a reality. And, and Gen, Gen Alpha are, are, are the first prototype of humanoids that, that our population is creating. And we as an organization, it's about in positively enforcing behavior. Um, you know, in, in a way, the way the, you know, if, if, if um, Prince Philip and his two cohorts that developed the, the Duke of Ed framework we're talking today, they'd be sitting around a table saying, well, we've got to create this framework, but it's got to be designed in open architecture. It's got to be highly dynamic, highly flexible. That's what they'd be talking about. And um, and we have to keep that, pursue that vision where the <coughs> um, open architecture built into the Duke of Ed is being used for 
greater good in terms of um, positive influences. Not, not necessarily to counter something, but to enhance and embellish whatever is ha happening out there. You know, we, we are in a highly digitized society already. That's going to accelerate an unbelievable, you know, uh, quantums. And, and the Duke of Ed's got to actually keep up with that. And I'm reinforcing what Steve's already mentioned. The way the award is structured, being done deliberately with goals over time, the logging, reflecting the activity coaches, that is a very key distinction to, say, a junior version of LinkedIn where anyone can write anything in to profile themselves. It's unverified. You take it on face value, you know, it could be false, it could be partially true, it could be a perception. So we have a really substantial role to play in in, in creating a more pro-social and a more engaged society. So I just, just I, I, I'm not sure I fully agree with, with Peter's analysis or at least sort of his pessimism about volunteering, simply because I think I, I, what he was saying there at the end, the award offers, uh, it's not that we're, we're lacking volunteers here in Canada. What we're lacking is an understanding that we're not really looking for somebody to do a volunteer job. We're looking for somebody to mentor young people. And it's an intergenerational communication. It's an intergenerational link between people within society. And, and it's not so much that it's a transactional volunteering role for us. It's about convincing them that they need to step out of their, you know, I'm an accountant, I'm 30 years old, I have my friends that are all accountants. You know, that, that, that lifestyle that people lock themselves into, into somebody who is, you know, I'm an accountant, but I'm also somebody who, you know, works with and volunteers for a local scout group because I've got a great interest that I want to share with other people, both other adults and young people around, you know, the great outdoors, the environment, and I do that by being a scout leader, for instance. And one of the things I use is the award, and I specialize in helping with the adventurous journey. You know, it, but it's it's about engaging people's passions and sharing those. And in a world where Peter's right, algorithms uh, basically reinforce you and push you into a box further and further. I mean, you know, my my Google feed. I mean, I never realized I was, you know a cooking rugby fanatic, but that's all Google <laughs> gives me these days because that's obviously all I ever read. Um, I don't get any news these days, which is really worrying. <laughs> but but that's that's what happens. It pushes you into a box. And I think the award with its four sections, three levels, and the fact you have to have a mentor, you have to have an award leader, is about intergener intergenerational connectivity. And in many ways, that is a huge selling point for not just, you know, being a volunteer, but it's a huge selling point for where volunteering really should be going to. Otherwise, we are going to end up locked in our rooms just talking to a computer. And just for, for clarity's sake, I just want to reinforce, I am actually here, Alberto. You're not talking to a chatbot. <laughs> You're not uh, chat uh, GPT, are you? Okay. I'm not chat GPT G today. Good to know. Good to not know. Not today. I, I wanted to give you guys both the opportunity um both to share a key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind, but also, before we do that, if there is any sort of, um, without overtly plugging, as it were, the virtues of the DOV, but uh, if you're into, uh, if, if you'd like people to contact you, if you're looking for uh, uh, financial support, donations, volunteers, whatever the case might be, uh, let us you know, this is the time to to just speak up a little bit and, and tell us, you know, what you're looking for and how somebody can get in touch with you guys. 
So from my point of view, really, as, as you've mentioned, it's our 60th anniversary. It is a big celebration. We understand that, you know, there are people out there that donors, you know, don't like to pay for candles. It's not about, you know, funding the, the big celebration, the big hurrah. It is about, you know, building for the future. And that isn't about just donations. It's about people coming back to the award. So if there are people listening from Canada who did the award, really want to make sure that they come back, join the alumni, join the celebrations, engage. Uh, if they didn't do the award, and I didn't, you know, I'm one of those people that thinks the award is amazing and wish I had the opportunity, then engage with us to try and find out how you can help young people going forward in this world, link, get more out of you know, what is a what is a is a tough world, and you know, try and help them make a difference. So I think you know, if there are people out there that are thinking, well, what what is it you're asking for us to do? I, Look at our website, www.dukeofed.org. Look at the 60th anniversary page and just see, you know, all of that good stuff that's on there talks about what we've done over the last 60 years, but also has some aspirations for what we're going to do in the future. Excellent. And Peter? Yes, the, the, the key thing uh, in us in Australia is um, uh, something to reinforce what I commented earlier on, just about anyone listening to this would be an employer and we would sort of say, become a Duke of Ed employer. Uh, reference the Duke of Ed on your website. Uh, that, that's one of the best things we can do. That, that's that's what money can't buy. It, it's sort of um, very critical to us. The uh, financial support base for us, as I, as I mentioned or quickly referred to, comes from um, uh, the registration fees. So we, we have very high registration fees. So we basically have a business class, a full economy, and then we have discount that we pay people $500 to come on board. Um, so we have a very different model that, that isn't dependent on donors. Um, 100% of our donor donation goes to a disadvantaged young person. In fact, 105%. So um, if anyone wants to come on board, we have lots of room for major supporters who can actually direct uh, their, their funding or resources to specific groups that, that, that that's important to them. You know, so whether it's you know uh, remote communities or, or whether it's um, refugees, and we promise 105 percent of their funding will go in that direction and the other exciting thing that's starting to grow with us as well is um a, a pay forward and regular giving through the workplace so once again employers can encourage their employees to give uh pre-tax um tax deductible donations um and equally we're encouraging people to um become a regular giver and uh, and support the registration and the activity costs of one two three or four young people and that applies to clubs like rotary and community organizations who want to get involved in, in a lighter way so we're talking for example 240 dollars a year so th th there's some of the options and like steve said yeah hit the website the international website is um uh, uh, uh int award int award.org and and that also refers to all the countries uh that are currently active in the Duke Great. And and Peter, a key takeaway for our listeners, one thing you'd love for them to keep in mind before uh, before we uh, part ways for today? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Alberta. And, and, and reflecting in terms of um, managing, leading a charity, um, you know, we went, we went against the, the grain um, and all advice. You know, we, we, we uh, decided to value our service and put a, a sustainable price on it. Um, and, you know, we were counseled not to. We were told that the sky's going to fall and we're all going to die. Um, but what happened is that we actually got record numbers. The year after we doubled our registration, we had record numbers. We doubled it again. We got record numbers. We, we, um, COVID 
was our record year ever. Well, it's a record year. Um, so we had the largest users coming out of COVID that we had coming into COVID. So my, my big advice is, you know, if, if, if your product's sound and you know it's relevant and you know you you deserve a, a, a social license to trade, then um, be bold, be deliberate. Excellent. And Steve, what's your uh, key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind? Probably for me, uh, and I'll focus a little bit on the mission. You know, a lot of people say life is a journey. And really the award for me is one of those tools that as a young person I wish I'd had that just, you know, gives you some preparation uh, to, to, to make that journey a little bit more fun, a little bit more interesting, a little bit more challenging. But, you know, there is fun in that. And I think it, it, it's something that I would just want people to, uh, to, to consider, you know, what is the quality of the life they've got at the moment and how do they enhance that? And the award for me is one of those life enhancing products that I wish there were more people who were taking um, a really sort of uh, objective uh, and rational choice about about choosing to challenge themselves, about choosing to make life just that little bit more uh, for themselves. Uh, I think the world could be a, a better place because of it. So hopefully this uh, this podcast helps switch a few more people on to, uh, to something that will help them and, and develop them. Here, 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 here. Well, Steve out in Canada and Peter in Australia, thank you both so very much for, for, for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today and for waking up early and staying up late, overcoming the time differences. It's been an absolute pleasure seeing both of you again and going down memory lane a little bit. Uh, uh, for uh, for a part of my life at the Duke of Edinburgh's Award that I have very fond memories for. So thank you both uh, very much. And here's to your continued success uh, for 2023 and beyond. Thank you, Alberto. Great pleasure. Yeah, likewise, Alberto. And pleasure as well, Steve, um, sharing this podcast with you. Cheers. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Steve DeWint, Chief Executive Officer of the Duke of Edinburgh's Award in Canada, and Peter Kay, Chief Executive Officer of the Duke of Edinburgh's Award in Australia. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show. And I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you as I do week in and week out. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, hopefully you're enthused to take action and improve the world around you. And make sure to tune in on Monday where we have another episode lined up for you that you'll thoroughly enjoy as well. Be well, and I'll catch you next week.